Good morning, church. Uh, both to all of you who are in the room and to you who are on the live stream, uh, welcome to you also. Uh, I want to begin with an observation. Uh, granted, this is going to be an, an overgeneralization, so this won't apply to everyone. Uh, but my observation is this, is that by and large, we struggle to follow directions. And by directions, I mean instructions. When somebody tells us something, I, I feel like by and large as a culture, we, we like to test it. Is it really true? I, th- I think the surest way that you can guarantee that everyone will touch a specific object is to mark it with a sign that says wet paint, right? It's like a phenomenon. Everybody suddenly has to touch it, right? Or maybe it's like one of these pictures. Noah, if you would uh, pop one of those up on the screen of people who just decided the signs didn't apply to them. Thank you for driving carefully with his overturned car, Right? I can imagine there was a sign at the other end that said, please drive carefully. Clearly, they did not feel like the sign applied to them. Or, or this driver also. Uh, they warned him in all fairness. Uh, the article I took this from said there were actually six signs warning them of a low bridge. And clearly, he thought the sign didn't apply to him. Or either that or he hadn't measured his truck. And you can see the aftermath of it just destroyed after he ran into the underhang of that. Right? Because for some reason for him, the signs just didn't apply or he didn't want to live his life according to them. Perhaps one of the clearest examples of this was uh, a story of um, three men who figured out the importance of following signage, following instructions. This was in 2019 in Snohomish County, uh, Washington, in Washington State. And these three men set out. They had uh, planned this, this great fishing trip. They were going to hike into the mountains. Uh, they had this excellent fishing spot. And on their way there, one of the guys said, hey, I want to take you over to my other fishing hole. It's, it's great. You're going you're gonna to love it. And so they get out the, the topographical map, and there, there is a, a trail clearly marked. And the beauty of a trail is it literally shows you the path. Here's the way that you should go. Here's the direction of travel. All you got to do is, is follow the signs, follow the instructions, and you're going to get to where you're going. But they took out the topographical map, and these guys are, are looking at the map. And what they noticed was the trail to get to this lake that just had excellent fishing was a lot of climbing. The altitude was significant, and there were a ton of switchbacks. If you know what switchbacks are, it's where the trail just zigzags back and forth up the mountain. And it just, it feels like you're not making any progress. It feels sluggish. And so these guys, uh, they're looking at the map, and one of them goes, guys, I've been here a ton of times. I know a shortcut. I I can show you an easier, much quicker, faster way to get there. And so they leave the trail, right? They leave the path that they should have been on, and they just start bushwhacking it uh, through the forest. It doesn't take too long, a couple hours before they are just hopelessly turned around. Now, they hadn't brought much food with them because they hadn't planned on on camping overnight. They were just going to be fishing for a day. And they got turned around and got lost and had to spend the next five days in the woods with very little water and, and hardly any food. After uh, the first day, they ended up just eating like berries and things that they could find on the ground. And at the end of that five days, the only reason they got out was because an elite search and rescue team was sent in and, and fortunately found them because their family told them, we don't know what route they took. All we know is they were headed for this lake, which gave the searchers an area to begin searching. But they fortunately found them. And the thing is that that whole ordeal would have been avoided if they would have just stuck to the path that was in front of them, if they would have followed the trail markers and signage, if they would have simply stuck to what the map said, but they thought they knew a better way. They was faster and easier. They thought they knew a shortcut. And and there's a reason I I tell that story and bring that observation to light. And and it's, it's this. 
In Ephesians chapter five, Paul continues to push into his teaching, not to walk as the Gentiles do, but rather to walk in the way of love. And the reason I I, I tell that story is because as Paul continues to point this out, he is going to describe for us a way of living that he says is fruitful, a way of living that he says is good. And and my concern as I read this text and as we walk through it today is that some of us are going to push back a little bit and say, really, Paul, this feels like some work. It would be much easier to just flow with the current of culture. And and so I think we're going to wrestle a little bit with what Paul says. But the, the question I want us to wrestle with is, will we stick to the way of living that Paul has called us to? Will we mark the path set out before us, the pattern of following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ? You'll remember last week, we talked a lot about Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, where Paul says, be imitators of God. Therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And and the beauty of what Paul says there is he says, follow the pattern of Jesus. The way that you see Jesus living, that pattern of self-sacrificial, other-oriented love is the same way that you should live. And this is the pattern that Christ calls us to, that Paul calls us to in his writing. And the question is, will we believe Paul and will we follow the instructions that he's giving us or will we push back and say, I know an easier way. I know a better way. And the warning is this. If we choose, I think, not to follow the teachings of Jesus, we often find ourselves hopelessly turned around and lost, needing rescue. And that's the the consequences of sin. So with that, we look at Ephesians chapter 5, 1 through 20. There Paul says this, he says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you were light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil." Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to suggest to you that the key idea here that Paul calls us to is this. He wants us to live intentionally and invest our lives in walking in the pattern of Christ's love. This is what he's calling us to, to live with intentionality. Notice what he said in verse 15, be very careful then how you live. In other words, Paul is going to call us to a specific pattern and a specific way of living. And he reveals right away in chapter five, verse one, what that pattern is. He says, be imitators of God. Now, I think we have to clarify that and reflect back a little bit on what we talked about last week. When Paul says, be an imitator of God, he's not saying that you just have to try really hard in your own strength to mimic Jesus. 
No, when Paul says be an imitator of God as dearly loved children, he has more in mind the relationship of of, a father to his children. And we talked about this last week. Maybe you've had this experience where you're, you're sitting down or you're standing, you're holding your body in such a way and it clicks. I've seen my, my dad do that same mannerism. Have you had that moment? Or, or maybe you say something, now that I have children, there's times that I'm disciplining one of my children and I hear my dad's words come out of my mouth. And I go, oh my goodness, my dad used to say that to me. I'm, I'm becoming my father, right? Have you had that experience? And, and, and the reason is, is because the, the DNA, the life of your father is in you. And so that's going to be part of what comes out of you, right? So when Paul says, be an imitator of Christ, he's not saying you try hard in your strength just to mimic Jesus. He, what he's saying is you have a new identity. You are a beloved child of God. So as a dearly beloved child, be an imitator of God and walk in the way of love because that's who you're becoming. That is your identity. It's what God is forming and shaping us to be. And so when Paul calls us to walk in the way of love, I think we also have to define love, right? Because culture has all sorts of definitions for what love looks like. And, and often we use the word love in just very casual ways, right? We talk about loving a restaurant, loving a, a TV show, whatever. But Paul has a very specific understanding of love. When he talks about love for Paul, he's talking about a self-sacrificial way of living, in which you have a concern for and an investment in the well-being of others. And often when I'm working with couples, particularly in a marriage context, and, and I ask them their story, they often talk about how they fell in love. And when I'm working with couples who are uh, trying to decide whether divorce is where they're going to head and, and whether or not they want to stay together, I sometimes hear this phrase where they talk about how they fell out of love. And, and the problem with that is love is framed as something haphazard that you stumble into and stumble out of. You fall into, you fall out of. But Paul has something much more intentional in mind. Paul is saying this is a decisive way in which you live in the pattern of Jesus, that your life begins to reflect who Jesus is with a self-sacrificial way of saying, Jesus, my life belongs to you. And I want to live as someone who is sent to serve and invest in the lives of other people. And so that Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, be imitators of God, is really the linchpin between Ephesians 4 and now Ephesians 5, because Paul is going to carry over this idea of the kind of life that we should live. Now, in verse 3, uh, Paul begins to change his tone. Last week, we talked positively about the walk in love practices, right? About speaking words that build up, about resolving anger quickly. Now, in chapter 5, Paul switches and he says, as you walk in the way of Christ's love, there are some things that no longer should be present in your life. In verse 3, we pick up where Paul begins teaching that. He says, but among you, right, in that little phrase, but among you, that's a contrast. He's signifying a change of thought. But among you, he says, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. And really what Paul is saying there, he's saying, if you are following, if you are walking in the way of love, you are following the example of Jesus, he's saying these things should be excluded from your life. He says, sexual immorality, impurity, and greed. He says, these are improper. In other words, don't give your life to them. Notice that Paul says, these are improper for God's holy people. And that little uh, adjective, holy, is really important. When something is holy, it means it's set apart in worship to God. In other words, Paul says, don't take what's holy, your life, that is to be set apart in worship for God and give your life in worship to other things that are not what you should be investing in. By the way, Paul will later in the same passage describe greed as idolatry, not adultery, idolatry, which means idol worship. 
So for Paul, there's the sense in which to be greedy means that there is something that you were worshiping over and above God. What are you greedy for? What is it you find yourself coveting? What is it you find yourself never quite getting enough of? Paul says that is a form of idol worship in your life. Paul says if you are a holy person, your life cannot be given over to that. Now, Paul also talks about sexual immorality. Whew, right? That's one our culture really doesn't like to talk about, right? And, and I think even this, we have to define, what does Paul mean by sexual immorality? I think what Paul means here is living with a sexual ethic that does not align with the word and with the way of God. And, and the hard part about doing a series, right, is that I'm only preaching on part of Ephesians 5, but if you finish all of Ephesians 5, Paul starts talking about the relational uh, relationship, the marriage relationship, and, and what that should look like. And, and Paul, in my mind, in Ephesians, clearly defines a, a right godly sexual ethic as the expression of sexuality between a husband and wife in the context of marriage. Now, sometimes people want to say, well, the, the, the church is really prudish when it talks about sex, right? That it's one of those things that even as I'm saying it, you're like, ah, can the pastor say sex in church? It's in the Bible, so I'm going with it, right? But really what you see is the Bible actually has a really beautiful teaching on sexuality. In Ephesians chapter 5, where t Paul talks about husbands and wives, he actually quotes Genesis 2. This is verse 31 of chapter 5 in Ephesians. He says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. And he says, this is a profound mystery. I love that. Paul says that there's something so beautiful that happens in sex. He says that uniting of husband and wife, he says the two literally become one flesh, that there's something, that the, really the language is covenantal. There's something so sacred that they share in that moment that Paul says it is a, not just a mystery, it is a profound mystery that Paul can't even put words to. That I think is really beautiful. Culture would say, expend sexuality however you want to. Live with whatever sexual ethic you want to. The problem is what culture doesn't tell you is not every sexual ethic leads to something that's good, right, and true for you. And so where Paul says, and notice by the way, Paul doesn't say, it's okay to have a little sexual immorality. Bless you, right? <laughs> what does Paul say? He says, there should not be even a hint not, not even a hit. It should not be present at all among you. No sexual immorality, no impurity, no greed. Why? Because Paul says these are improper. Now, Paul uh, pushes it even further. And, and he says this in verse four. Notice what he says. These also don't align with the pattern of the way we're supposed to walk as we imitate Christ. Verse four. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place. Whew, now, some of us are convinced Paul just went off the deep end, right? We're like, Paul, does this really matter? Or are you going to talk about sexual immorality and greed? Like, those seem like bigger deals. But obscenity, ah, foolish talk, coarse joking, are, are, are these really that big a deal? And, and some of you, you're even thinking, okay, if, if I live by what Paul says is true, I don't even know how to relate socially at the place that I work. Some of you, the environment that you work in, it's like if you don't talk in obscenities and, and foolish talk and coarse joking, it's like, I don't know how to relate. And, and some of us, we read this and you're like, I don't want to be pegged as the holy roller. Oh, like he didn't laugh at the joke, right? We know who's holier than thou, right? We don't want to be that person. And so my concern is this, that we read Paul's writing and we, we want to push back on it and say, ah, I'm not sure this is that big a deal. And, and some of us, we look at this and we read this and we go, Paul, is this just kind of legalistic? 
And, and I think as we walk through, we're going to continue to see why for Paul this is such a big deal. This is not just legalism that Paul is talking about here. This is not just a new set of rules of do's and don'ts. But what Paul is trying to do is describe an intentional, fruit-filled way of living. And what he's saying is these patterns, sexual immorality, impurity, greed, obscenity, foolish talk, and coarse joking, he's saying these are not part of the pattern of an intentional, fruitful life. And we'll see that play out as Paul continues writing. Before we leave this verse, though, I, I want to put this quote from uh, theologian G.B. Caird up on the screen. He said this. He said, where vice is regarded as amusing, the practice of it comes easy. I think there's truth to that. Where vice is regarded as amusing, the practice of it comes easy. Listen, what we take lightly and make a joke of when it involves attitudes and, and, and practices of, of sinfulness, it just becomes that much easier to make it a practice in your life. Right? If you make jokes about pornography, is it really that big a deal to engage in pornography? Right? It feels like our culture wants to describe that as sort of a victimless crime. But what they're blind to are the marriages and relationships and lives that are literally ruined because of pornography. By the way, the word that Paul uses for sexual immorality is the Greek word pornia. That's literally part of what is encapsulated in this verse is, is anything that lends itself to sexual impurity. But when we make a joke of those things or pretend like it doesn't matter, the, the practice of it just becomes incrementally easier. And I think that's why Paul says there should not be even a hint among you. So I, I want to make this observation that for Paul, words and witness matter. And, and here's what I mean by that. What you say, what comes out of your mouth is really, really important. Hopefully you remember that in Ephesians chapter four, Paul said this, he said, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only what is useful for building others up that you may give grace to everyone who hears. And so we have to keep Ephesians four in that context. We have to keep it in connection with Ephesians five. Paul has already told us that your mouth is to be an instrument and a means, a conduit of speaking God's truth and God's grace. So what Paul is saying here is don't take what is to be an instrument of God's grace that you can literally give grace to people as you speak the truth of God's word. Paul says, don't take that instrument of grace and out of the same mouth, let obscenity, foolish talk, and coarse joking because words matter. And your witness, the life that you model matters. The example that you set for other people around you matters. And I think what Paul is inviting the people into, his instruction to them is this, live in a way that is distinct from culture without being separate from culture. Notice what Paul says in verse six and seven. Let me read this for you. Uh, he previously talked about how no immoral, impure, greedy person has any inheritance in the kingdom of God, right? They're, they're showing that their identity is not one who's walking in the truth. Verse six, he says this, let no one deceive you with empty words for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. He's talking about God's wrath coming because of the sinful practices, right? And what Paul says here, he says, don't let someone deceive you with empty words. Don't let a culture around you that's not aligned with God's word and God's way, with God's truth, don't let them through empty philosophies, empty words, uh, allure you into thinking that the truth of God doesn't matter. Paul says, in fact, God's wrath is coming because of sinful practices. And then he says this in verse seven. He says, therefore, do not be partners with them. In, in the original language, that word literally means joint partakers, Right Now, Paul is not saying this. He's not saying what I want you to do is go build a monastery with high walls and shut yourself out from society. No, I don't, that's not at all what he's saying. What he's saying is don't be joint partakers. Don't enter your life in a pattern of living that does not align with God's word and God's way. He is calling the believers to be distinct. Your life should look very different from the culture around you. 
right? Ephesians 4, 1 and 2. Don't walk in the way of Gentiles. Walk in the way of love, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Be imitators of God, right? Paul is calling the church at Ephesus to a radical new way of living that is very different and distinct and out of alignment with the culture around it. Now, I'm not sure I've I've pushed this point far enough, so I want to come back to this. I want us to recognize that as believers, we are liberated in love to serve, but we're not mired in legalism. Because I I think for some of us, we're we're looking at Paul's teaching here, and, and we feel like, ah, this feels a little bit legalistic. It still sort of feels like Paul is giving us a list of do's and don'ts. But I want to suggest to you, when you take into account the fullness of Paul's teaching, this is not legalism. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 13. He says this. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. I I love the beauty of what Paul says there. He says, you have been set free. And Paul, when he talks about being set free, he he has two things in mind there. One, into the church in Galatia, he's talking about they've been set free from observing the Jewish law. They don't have to live according to a list of do's and don'ts. They've also been set free from the sinful nature. Paul says you've been set free in order that your life can be turned outward on itself in service to other people. And and, and something about uh, that way of living is part of what aligns with God's truth, God's word, God's way, and is where we experience the fullness of life. And so what Paul is describing is not a legalistic way of living. What he's trying to describe for us, and we'll get to this in a second, is a fruit-filled deep, rich way of living and experience the life that we're called to. But first, let me break this down for us. Because I think there's sort of a spectrum here, right? And at the far end, we have legalism. Now, legalism is all about a works-oriented way of salvation that says my being saved ultimately depends on my ability to keep the rules. In legalism, there's not much room for grace. It all depends on me. Now, at the opposite end of that spectrum, and I think this is where a lot of our culture lives, is this idea of license. And by license, I mean, I have the freedom to do whatever I want. And and I think this is where culture lives, and this is where culture wants to pull us. And they'll say things like, uh, as long as you're not hurting anybody, feel free to to live however you want and pursue whatever you want. And and so when we live here, we live with a kind of a self-oriented way of living. I'm going to pursue what I want, what I think makes me happy. I'm going to pursue pleasure. Uh, As long as I'm not, uh, quote unquote, hurting anybody else, it'll be fine. And I think ultimately what this fails to recognize is you don't make any decisions in a social vacuum. Every decision that you make is going to have implications for the community and the loved ones that you're a part of. Now, I think a balanced and, and the place that Paul is calling us is this walk in love place. It's recognizing that, yes, you've been set free, but you've been called and set free to serve in love, to turn your life outward on itself. Don't use your freedom, Paul says, to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Now, here's why I think this matters. Whether you're walking in legalism or license or walking in the pattern that Paul calls us to of imitators of Christ, your priorities, how you relate to others, and the direction of your life will look different. So let me flesh this out for you. When you walk with a sense of license, I have the freedom to do whatever I want. Your key priority is individual liberty. Nobody's going to infringe on how I want to live. I'm going to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, because it feels good to me and it's seemingly not hurting anybody else. And in the key priorities, I have individual liberty. Now, when you're walking in the pattern of Christ's love, I think the, the key here is, am I living out truth? Right? That's what Paul is calling the church at Ephesus to. He's saying, walk in the way of love. Why? Because that's who you're becoming. That's the truth of the life that God is forming in you. 
You're no longer darkness. You are light and the Lord live as children of the light. The fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. When you are following the example of Jesus, your key priority, one of the key questions is, am I living a life that's aligned with the truth of God's word? Now, when you're walking in legalism, the key priority is, is looks. And what I mean by this is, am I living in such a way that it looks like to everyone around me that I've got it figured out, even though my heart is broken? And the, 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 this legalism is someone that says, I'm, I'm going to keep the law to the letter of the law, but they miss the heart and spirit of the law. Let, let me flesh this out for you, what I mean. In uh, Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, Jesus uh, addresses this idea of legalism in the life of the Pharisees. He says this. He says, woe to you teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Right? These were the experts in the, in the Jewish scriptures. He says, you hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, your mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat to swallow a camel. Did, did you see what Jesus said? He says, the, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they followed it to the letter. They were tithing. They were making a show of, look how good I am. I'm giving to God what the law requires. But they weren't practicing mercy and justice, the very things that the law was pointing to. Right? But when we're functioning in legalism, what we want to do is project an image of, look how righteous I am. Even though underneath that, our heart is not following in the way in the pattern of Jesus. Now, when we think about how we relate to others, when you're living in this place of license, I think there's a careless disposition to others. We're not so concerned about their well-being. What we're concerned about is, do I have the freedom to do what I want? What I'm most concerned about is my ability to live with my individual sense of freedom, which leads us to a careless disposition toward other people. Now, I think when we're walking in love, our life is to be oriented with a sense of compassionate care. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That sacrificial life of Jesus on the cross, Paul says, by the way, that is the same pattern of how you were to live life. Life is not to be oriented around myself. I'm to be poured out, serving God and loving others. Now, when you live in legalism, what matters here is comparison, right? And let me, let me illustrate this for you. In Luke uh, chapter 19, Jesus tells this parable again of another Pharisee. He says this. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers and evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up, but he beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Did, did you notice how the, the Pharisee was functioning in that passage? The comparison he makes, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers and evildoers and adulterers, right? When we are functioning in legalism, we, we want to play this comparison game. And what we do is we mitigate our sin and we elevate the sin of others. Well, at least I'm not like so-and-so. Do you see what they did? Whoa, they blew up their life. I'm not like that, right? And we want to mitigate the things that are wrong in our life. That, that is a legalistic way to live, but I don't think it's the pattern of what Christ calls us to. Now, when we think about how we live life, when I talk about life direction, where are you orienting? What's the path that you're following? If it's licensed, the path is self-indulgence. I'm going to pursue what I want, my pleasures, my passions. I'm going to indulge whatever I want. Walk in love is a sent to serve mentality. Legalism is a self-righteous mentality that says, I am so convinced I'm right that I am not going to humbly receive from anyone or let anyone speak truth into my life because I have it figured out. Listen, church, Paul is not calling us to a legalistic life. 
What he's trying to do is help us understand that what he's calling us to, this pattern of living, of, of not even having a hint of sexual immorality, impurity, or greed, to have no obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking. What Paul is saying is these are not rules you follow. It is a way of living uh, because it's who you're becoming. It's the identity that is being formed in you in Christ. It's not a set of rules to follow, but it is a liberated way of living. Notice what Paul says in chapter 5, verse 8, right? And this is part of the significance of this new pattern that Paul is calling the the Ephesians Ephesians to. 5, verse 8, he says this. He says, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. That's who you used to be, but not anymore. Now he says, walk as children of the light. Walk as people who are adhering to the truth and to the word of God, who are following the pattern of Jesus in your life. Also, Paul says this, the the reason he calls us to this pattern of living is this, we are called to invest our life in a fruitful way of living. Notice what he says in verse nine, live as children of the light. Why? Because the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. As you align your life with the truth of God, as you become an imitator of the life of Jesus that's being formed and shaped in you, Paul says all that is good and right and true begins to bear fruit in your life. And and I want you to just pause there a second. Do you believe that walking according to the truth of God will bear good fruit in your life? I I think, honestly, I think for some of us, we're looking at this going, this this feels like a pretty countercultural hard way to live. Paul, there's gotta be an easier way. And just like those guys who look for a shortcut to the fishing hole, right? We wanna cut out the switchbacks of this life of truth that Paul is calling us to. And we wanna go, where's the shortcut? But I can promise you, if you avoid walking in the pattern of truth that God gives you, you will find yourself hopelessly lost in philosophies that yield anything but fruit. We'll get to that in a second. Finally, the significance of living in this pattern of love. Paul says, you're to walk in this way as a child of light because you're also called to bear witness to other people to a better way of living. Notice what he says in verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 11. He says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Right now, notice Paul says, not only should you not give your life to the fruitless deeds of darkness, he says, rather you should expose them for what they are. We're, we're not called to, to just go, I'm going to get my ticket to heaven and I'm going to get right with God and then it's just going to be me and God. No, Paul, Paul says, walk in the way of love. Turn your life outward on itself. Have a self-sacrificial, others-oriented way of living where not only have you escaped the fruitless deeds of darkness, but now Paul says, speak truth back to that environment and expose those deeds of darkness for what they are as a fruitless way of living. Don't just let the hollow words, as he said uh, previously, go unchallenged. He says, speak truth into that. Call attention to the fruitless ways of living. Expose them for what they are. Now, here's the danger in all this. If we decide, Paul, I don't want to heed your words of truth. Notice what he says in verse 11. He says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds. I think the danger of, of avoiding the truth that Paul is calling us to is we can invest our lives in a way of living that is fruitless if not now, for sure in eternity. Now, if somebody told you, you pick a shortcut, you decide to head in a certain direction and somebody says, oh, by the way, the bridge is out up ahead or it's gonna be a dead end. If you take their word, you're gonna save yourself a lot of time and hassle. Unless for some of you, you're like, no, I'm gonna have to drive all the way to the end and see for myself that the bridge is out. What Paul is doing is saying, listen, there's a way of living if you were not aligned with God's truth that results in a fruitless investment of your life. 
And so when Paul says, listen, but among you there should be no hint of sexual immorality, impurity, or greed, obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, Paul is trying to warn them, don't invest time and energy in these things that are fruitless, but give your life to what really matters. Invest your life in a fruitful way of living. I don't know about you, but I don't want to invest my life in things that ultimately don't matter. And I think Paul begins to push this even further. Notice what he says in verse 15. Right? Why, why is this important to Paul? Verse 15. He says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Be very careful how you live. In other words, be intentional with how you are investing your time, talents, and energy. Be very careful with how you are walking and living your life. Notice what he says too in verse 16. He says, making the most of every opportunity. Why? Because the days are evil. Paul says, make the most of the moment that you've been given. Literally, that phrase, making the most of every opportunity, literally means redeem the time. Live in a way right now in the present moment where you have a redemptive presence in the lives of the sphere of influence that God has blessed you with. Listen, it might seem like you have a long time as parents, but the time that you have to invest in the lives of your children is short. Make the most of that opportunity. The time that you have with your coworkers, the time that you have with your neighbors, the times that you have with your friends, those are, are, are short. Make the most of every opportunity to live in a fruitful way, to call attention to the truth of God, to have a redemptive presence in those moments. Make every effort, Paul says, to be careful how you live. To make the most of the opportunity that's in front of you to bear witness to the truth of God. Now, Paul gives some guidelines. I'm going to hit these briefly. Some guidelines for intentional living. Notice what he says. I think these are are simple, but so important. Verse 17 says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Listen, if you're going to make the most of the opportunity in front of you, it is wise to pause and to seek the will of God in those decisions. How, How many times do we just plow headlong into life decisions and we just live our life according to our own plan and purpose? And, And Paul says, listen, don't be foolish but seek to understand the will of God for your life. In the men's group that I go to on Sunday morning, we've been talking about this process of pray, pause, ponder, and proceed. Before you snap to a decision, pause, pray about it, think it over, reflect on it before you proceed. And I think Paul would say, listen, that is a wise way of living to invite the presence and the discernment of God into that process. Paul's second guideline for holy living, he says this in verse 18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the spirit. That word debauchery literally means to dissipate the energy of your life. It means to take what God has given you and just to diffuse it in ways that don't matter. And so Paul has in mind here, someone who just lives for the next party, all they're doing is living for that next high, that next thrill. Paul says, listen, don't seek that next moment where you can just get drunk and party. Paul says that leads to a place in which you were dissipating the energy of your life. Paul says, be very careful how you live. Live as, not as unwise, but as wise. Make the most of every opportunity. So instead, he says, seek to be filled with the spirit. In other words, align your life in the places and opportunities where God reveals himself by his spirit. One of those places for Paul is he'll describe cultivating next a life of worship and gratitude. Part of living intentionally, part of making the most of every opportunity is cultivating a life that is rooted in worship and gratitude. Notice what Paul says, verse 19. He says, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think there's something about worship 
that keeps us rooted and grounded in the truth of God. But when we engage in worship, right, those are not just words on a screen. That is an opportunity to pray collectively, to praise God collectively. What we're doing in that moment of worship is we're responding in gratitude to the God who has revealed himself to us. So think back to Ephesians 2 where Paul says, at one time you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but God who is rich in mercy has made you alive in Christ Jesus. How do you respond in gratitude? That's a praise and worship moment. I I have this, I've been reading Titus uh, and walking through that book and this phrase struck me. In Titus chapter three, verse four, Paul says this. He says, we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But catch this, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. I love that. We lived in malice. We were envious people. We hated and other people and other people hated us. But Paul says the kindness of God, he's talking about Jesus. And, and I look at that and I go, how do I even begin to respond to the kindness of God that sees me in my sin and brokenness and redeems me anyway? How can we help but not respond with anything but gratitude? And by, by the way, when Paul says, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything, we have to remember that Paul is writing this letter from prison. I have a hard time thanking God when it snows in March. How about you? I actually refuse to shovel mostly for this last snowstorm. Thought it's March, my shoveling days are over. So I'm just gonna drive over it because I'm angry, right? But Paul writing from prison says, always give thanks to God the Father for everything. When you live with gratitude, it is a way of practicing what it is to redeem the time and to remember even in difficult moments as you thank God, as you respond in worship, you are reminded that God is present even in those difficult things. So here's the takeaway thing for us is that Paul would say, invest your life intentionally in walking in the way of love that you might have a redemptive presence in all your spheres of influence. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity that we might walk in a way that bears the fruit of goodness and righteousness and truth. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth of Paul's words. There's some things I think that Paul teaches that are, that are hard to hear. It's a way of living that sometimes feels challenging. And yet, God, we're reminded in all of this that you don't call us to do this on our own strength, but that you are forming and changing and transforming who we are, that in Christ Jesus, the old is gone, the new has come. And so you're not asking us to, to step into a legalistic way of living. No, this is a way of living that is liberated in love in which we actually experience the fullness of the life that you've called us to. So God, let us not seek a shortcut around the way of living that you call us to, but may we give ourselves wholeheartedly to you, Jesus, that we would be imitators of your son, Jesus, walking in the way of your love. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.